Listening to the Through the Bible Studio series with Pastor Nate Holdred. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Luke. Here's Nate. Well, today's study brings us to Luke chapter 21. Verse 5 through 38 of Luke 21 records Jesus's. Olivet Discourse. Uh, we call it this because Jesus, after leaving the temple, after dealing with the scribes and the Pharisees and teaching there and being rejected by them and rebuking them, being questioned by them, he then went out to the Mount of Olives outside of the Temple Mount. And his disciples began to talk to him about the temple. And from that, Jesus indicated that the temple would be destroyed. They questioned that amongst other things, and Jesus answered his disciples and gave there on the Mount of Olives this teaching. Now, the application of this section of scripture is found at the end of the teaching. Jesus will tell his disciples, and by extension us, that we are to watch, to keep ourselves from uh, dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life, and then also that we are to stay awake, that there's to be an alertness within us and and a prayerfulness about our lives in the face of disaster and persecution. Now, It should be mentioned, of course, that in approaching Luke 21 or the sister passages of Luke 21, places like Matthew chapter 24, which also records the Olivet Discourse in slightly greater detail, or Mark chapter 13, where the Olivet Discourse is also given, it should be mentioned that these passages are interpreted in various ways by different communities of believers. There are various eschatological or end times or prophetic views. I think it's important for there to be a respect, an appreciation, and a love for one another when it comes to these varied interpretations. You're not going to hear us in the body of Christ when talking about the Trinity or justification by faith or the deity of Christ or even the attributes of God. You're not going to hear us saying things like, this is my interpretation or someday we'll see how this all plays out as best as I can tell. You won't hear that kind of jargon because we're certain those are closed issues to us, close-handed issues uh, to us. But then it seems as if within eschatology, end times things, there's there's got to be a little bit of open-handedness, I think, just a little bit of wiggle room and understanding that, look, uh, th- these are my convictions. This is what I think. Here's why I think these things. However, at the end of the day, this isn't a salvation kind of issue. And so I can love and have humility and be gentle uh, in all of these things. And I think that sometimes we live in an era where there's a little bit too much of like mudslinging over this particular issue. Premillennialists, of which I am one, calling amillennialists liberal and uh, on a slippery slope to denying all cardinal Christian doctrines. Or 
Or on the other side of things, amillennialists asserting that premillennialists got their view from Darby and Schofield and the Left Behind series and nothing else. So I think we need to throw out, you know, that kind of mudslinging, have more of a mutual respect for one another. I know when it comes to the three major views that are out there, postmillennialism, which, you know, really isn't that major of a view, and amillennialism and premillennialism, which, which all relate to a person's view of the millennium. I, you know, postmillennialism has a high view of the power of the gospel. They believe that through the preaching of the gospel, the kingdom age is going to come in. I, I don't share that view, but I can appreciate their high view of what the gospel can do. The amillennialist who believes that we are, the name indicates no millennium, but the amillennialist really believes that the thousand-year reign of Christ in Revelation 20 is is uh, being fulfilled right now in a spiritual kind of sense. And I can appreciate in their scheme or their view a desire for a normal and clean prophetic interpretation. Admittedly, some of the things that premillennialists believe about the way that things are going to unfold, it sounds rather wild to believe in. And so I can appreciate their desire for a normal and clean prophetic interpretation. And, and, and I think even still, I can say a high view of scripture. And then the premillennial view, I, I, I appreciate the literal view being constant and a real high regard for the face value uh, of uh, God's word. All right, so here we go. Approaching Luke chapter uh, 21. Here are some of the reasons that I believe most of what we're going to read in this chapter is uh, yet future. Uh, Number one, and I I hinted at this already, I am so closely tied to a literal interpretation when at all possible in my approach to uh, Bible study. And there's just too much here that I would have to take as symbolic the visible coming of Christ to have to see that as symbolic is very difficult for me, especially when Jesus in Matthew 24 verse 26 warned his disciples, hey, if they say to you, look, he's over here or he's over there, don't believe them. It seems almost as if Jesus is warning, don't accept a spiritual interpretation of my coming. Secondly, I believe that these things are future because of the way that I believe in the Old Testament promises to the nation of Israel, the Old Testament prophecy of Daniel chapter 9, Romans 9 and 10 and 11, and other New Testament passages, there seems to be an indication that God is not finished with the nation of Israel. And so I believe that these things are future and that God is turning his attention once again in the future to the people of Israel. Number three, it's hard for me to ignore that in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus talked about labor pains of wars and famines of earth and earthquakes that would increase. And it seems to me to be forced to say that all of those things happened before 70 AD. And there seems to be an increase in our modern era. Also, number four, it's hard for me to imagine that God would give a threefold record in his word you know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record this Olivet Discourse, a threefold record in his word for all future generations that really only had application for the 20 or 30 years before 
70 AD. You know, if all of this was just fulfilled in 70 AD, it's just wild to me that Matthew, Mark, and Luke give it to us for all future generations of the church, not to mention the book of Revelation being given to the future generations of the church as well. Number five, I believe that telescoped prophecies were part of the Old Testament as well, that there would be sort of a double fulfillment, that you sort of saw the near and the far in the same breath. And so I see that as being found in the Old Testament, and I think it's happening here in the Olivet Discourse. Number six, I think that the 70 AD interpretation, that all of this in in Luke 21 or Matthew 24 or Mark 13, all of this was fulfilled in 70 AD, it seems to me that what would have to flow from that is a meaning from Jesus that the kingdom will not come until after 70 AD. So my belief is that the kingdom came spiritually the moment Christ was on earth and then especially with his death, burial, and resurrection and the possibility of regeneration and that someday it will be apparent literally when he comes in a literal physical sense. Number seven, I believe that the evidence shows that the book of Revelation was written by John long after the events of 70 AD. So I think there was still this anticipation of all of this wrath and destruction and terror that would come upon the earth that was not fulfilled in 70 AD through the writings of John. Also, number eight, Matthew chapter 25 records parables that make it very clear that Jesus is anticipating a literal second coming in the future. And so it seems suspect to me that Matthew 25 would follow Matthew 24. If if Matthew 24 is just about 70 AD, why give us a couple of parables that clearly relate to the attitude that we should have before the second coming literally of Christ. Number nine, Luke 21, verse 35, Jesus said in conclusion to these things that these are things that will come upon those who dwell on the face of the whole earth, not just Jerusalem, not just Israel, but the whole earth. But mostly, I just don't think that you can ignore the threefold question that the disciples asked in Matthew's account. You see, what we have here in Luke chapter 21 is very simple. They asked him in verse 7, teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the signs when these things are about to take place? But in Matthew 24, we discover that the disciples came to him and asked him, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So they're asking about the destruction of Jerusalem, the return of Jesus, and the end of the age. Now, I'm not saying that they knew exactly what they meant when they asked that question, but it is the question that they asked. And I don't think that we can ignore that Jesus is answering that question, that he's he's answering about the destruction of Jerusalem. He's answering about the return of Christ and the end of the age. He is addressing all three of those uh, questions. So, Thank you for bearing with me with that sort of introduction. I didn't do it for Matthew 24. I didn't do it for Mark 13. But here we go, Luke 21. I wanted to give that backdrop a little bit before we jump into this section. Uh, Probably I wanted to do it here because in Luke 21, you really do have the passage that if you took a this was all fulfilled in 70 AD approach, 
it is kind of the easy one, easiest one to put into that mold. I think it's much more difficult in Mark 13 and in Matthew uh, chapter 24. So I just wanted to mention, I don't believe that this is all fulfilled in 70 AD, and here's why. So let's actually pick up the text. That's why we're getting into this. It starts out in verse 5. It says, well, some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, He said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be uh, thrown down. So they just left the temple. They're apparently marveling at the glory of the temple. These country guys from up in Galilee, they're looking at Herod's temple, which really was magnificent. Golden plates and white stones. It said that people from far away, when they caught their first glimpse of the temple from far away, thought that there was snow on the temple mount because of the whiteness of these stones. It was just a bright, magnificent, glorious building with these huge stones that had been hewn for the temple and for the temple mount. It says in Mark 13, verse 1, that the the disciples, one of them at least, said to Jesus, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Jesus, though, announces to him, The day is coming when all of these stones will be thrown down. You might remember that Jesus, at the end of chapter 19, began to weep over Jerusalem. There's this sense in his heart where he knows that destruction is coming. And the destruction that did come in 70 AD when the Romans came in and General Titus uh, sacked Jerusalem and laid siege to it for a few years, it was a gruesome time in Israel's history, a brutal period. It said that 2 million Jews died within a few years. Just a painful moment, a painful experience. Jesus here said, these stones, not one is going to be left upon another. So they asked him, just very shocked, you know, how could this be? And so they asked him, teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? Now, as I mentioned from Matthew 24, verse three, I believe that the question goes far beyond just the destruction of Jerusalem and goes into Matthew 24, verse 3, the sign of his coming and of the end of the age. So I think he begins to talk about the first half of what we would refer to as the Great Tribulation. Daniel received a prophecy from God through his messenger, the angel Gabriel, that there would be a 490-year period of time where God dealt with the nation of Israel. It seems clear that from the command to rebuild Jerusalem all the way to the time of Jesus, its 483 years have been fulfilled. But there's one final seven-year period according to Daniel chapter 9. And this seems to be the description of that final seven-year period, a time that many have referred to as the Great Tribulation and that some have referred to based on the Old Testament as the time of Jacob's trouble. He said in verse 8, See that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. So one of the things that Jesus gives to the church, gives to us, is a warning against false Christs, false messengers, false messiahs and leaders. Now, ultimately, there will be a fulfillment of this, it seems, 
in one key figure that we refer to quite often as the Antichrist, who will be a great deceiver. But in the era that we're living in now, in the church age, we have to be cautious. We're not to follow false leaders who come with a secret revelation. I'm he. The time is at hand. Some kind of secret, special, spiritual revelation. We're to reject that. See, he says that you are not led astray. And when, verse 8, you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Another thing that Jesus warned us about is, listen, when wars and tumults are happening here on earth, don't be terrified. They don't necessarily indicate that the end is here, but they must first take place in order for the end to come. So, obviously, there was an immediate application to these disciples. They would experience great wars there against their home country and against Jerusalem through the Roman Empire. But for us, we're to say, okay, when wars and tumults occur here on earth, I'm not to be frightened by the wars of this world. I'm not to panic over the you know disaster and bloodshed that I see in the world. I'm not to be happy about it. I'm not to root for it. I'm not to cheer it. Uh, I'm to do what I can about it. But on the other hand, my soul is at rest because I understand that we are living in a world that is in upheaval and unrest against God. And ultimately, these things must take place before Christ returns. And he said, then he said, verse 10, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. So you've got different kinds of countries. Some would you would refer to as nations, others you Others you would refer to as kingdoms. They come up against one another. He says in verse 11, there will be great earthquakes and in various places, famines and pestilences, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. So you have war, you have earthquakes, you have famine, hunger as a result of the chaos and wars and greed of man. And you also have sicknesses or pestilences throughout the world. And even with all of our scientific advances, we still have so many diseases that there's just nothing we can do about. And so these things spread. In another place, Jesus spoke of them as labor pain. So perhaps there's an increasing intensity as we go through these things. But before all this, Jesus said in verse 12, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my namesake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. One of the things leading up, Jesus tells us here, leading up to the catastrophic events that are recorded for us, is that there will be persecution. He says, verse 12, before all this, before the earthquakes, before the famines, before the wars between nations and kingdoms, before the pestilences, before all of that in a worldwide sense, before all of that, there will be persecution 
upon God's people, persecution upon the church. We as God's people should not be surprised by increased persecution and hostility. Now, the culture that I'm living in, you know, it's good to prepare for a little bit of animosity, perhaps, or some kind of cultural rejection. But in other cultures around the world, the persecution is much more real. The threat, I mean, just what it takes in some countries for a Muslim person to come to Christ. And when they come to Christ, the threat of death upon their lives and upon the person who shared the gospel with them is just incredible. And that so many believers are living under that very physical threat of persecution grieves the heart of the church that is free throughout the world to operate publicly in worshiping the Lord. What can those of us who are in that place of freedom, what can we do? Well, I think on a spiritual level, we are called to fast and pray for our struggling, suffering brothers and sisters in Christ. I'd encourage you, skip some meals, fast for them, pray for them. I think also there are organizations we can financially support to help the persecuted church. I think of all of the enterprises that would be good for the church to support. Supporting financially persecuted believers is wonderful. And then some of us live in nations where we can offer our political support of the persecuted church. And so to make requests of our governing authorities and to ask them to act on behalf of those who are suffering for the cause of Christ, I think is important. Notice also that Jesus encourages the person who is persecuted and says, in that moment, it's an opportunity. When they call you up to give defense, I will speak through you. I will be with you. I will give you a mouth of wisdom. He then says to them in verse 18 and 19, but not a hair of your head will perish. That's a fascinating phrase. He tells them just before that, that they are going to be betrayed, that they're going to some of them die and that they'll be hated. But then he says, but not a hair of your head will perish. Both are true. They didn't have to worry. They don't have to worry. Uh, Persecuted believers don't need to be concerned about their eternal security. God won't even lose track of one hair of their head. And Jesus said in verse 19, by your endurance, you will gain your lives. And if the persecuted church can endure, then certainly those who are free in this life can endure as well. Then he says in verse 20, And admittedly, this sounds mostly like the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. However, in Daniel, or excuse me, in Matthew and Mark, Jesus makes a reference in this portion about the abomination of desolation, a reference from Daniel chapter 9. So I believe that it's possible there's actually a double fulfillment of this. Something found in 70 AD and some of it found still yet future to us. He says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are inside the city depart and let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, 
For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So when Jerusalem was defeated, it began to be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles, something that I think is still occurring even today. Because even though Jews have returned to Israel, if you think about the Temple Mount, it is still occupied by Islam. And so it seems that the it's still the time of the Gentiles in the most holy of places there in Jerusalem. And so right now we are living, I believe, in the gap between verse 24, the time of the Gentiles, and verse 25, the great tribulation, Jesus mentioning it once again. Personally, I believe that this is the point that the church is called home to be with the Lord. Now, verse 25, there will be signs in the sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heaven will be shaken. So Jesus here begins to talk about these cataclysmic events in the sun, the moon, the stars, the ocean, and the heavens. Now, again, I know that some people interpret this in a very spiritual kind of way, but I think that as I read the book of Revelation, chapter 6 through 19 specifically, that there are very physical, specific, visible events that will occur here on earth. The seals will be opened. The Antichrist will come. There will be worldwide violence and worldwide financial collapse, worldwide death of a quarter of the population with famine and sickness and even animals attacking human beings. There will be martyrs during that time of tribulation and there will be cataclysmic disaster is what Jesus seems to refer to. Vegetation will eventually be struck. Seas will be struck. The water supply will be struck and the sun and the moon and the stars cosmic disaster will be unfolded upon the earth. There seems to be a time in the fifth seal when it's opened in Revelation that the demonic realm is released in a horrible way upon earth for five months, that a third of mankind dies through these angelic warriors, that pains and sores eventually come upon all who follow this antichrist figure, that there's a complete destruction of ocean life and the fresh water supply and the people are scorched by sun and that eventually before the time that Christ returns, the antichrist and his kingdom will be overcome by painful darkness, the Euphrates River drying up, making a way for the armies of the east to come to battle against God at Armageddon and eventually the world religion and world system judged by God and Christ returns. That's what Jesus indicates in verse 27. And then they will see the son of man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now, when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. And again, I believe in the visible return of Christ in the clouds described for us here and in Revelation chapter 19. 
He told them a parable in verse 29, back in Luke chapter 21, where he said, look at the fig tree and all the trees. So I don't know that the fig tree is necessarily the point. It seems to be the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, he said, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. So we learn in Matthew 24, verse 36, that we do not know the day or the hour uh, that Christ will return, but we can just kind of get a general sense. Okay, it must be coming soon because, well, when the trees leaf, you know summer is near. But when you see these things taking place, Jesus said, you know the kingdom of God is near. Then he said something that is very fascinating. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all is taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. The big question is, who is the generation that will not pass away until all has taken place? Some think that he's talking about not a generation, but a race of people, the Jews specifically. And then others think he's simply only talking about those who saw the destruction of Jerusalem. When they saw the signs before it, they would see the destruction of Jerusalem. Personally, I just think Jesus is saying those who begin to see these events, they're going to see the return of Christ. But watch, he says, yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap, for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. We're to watch our lives, Jesus says. Watch out for dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life. And and stay awake. Pray that you'll be found faithful to escape all these things that are going to take place and stand before the Lord. And every day, verse 37, he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning, all the people came to him and to the temple to hear him. So a fascinating teaching uh, from Jesus. Again, there's the interpretation that I hold to along with many others, but let us be respectful and kind and show charity to those who we might not even agree with in the body of Christ concerning the matters of the last things. God bless you and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings or to contact us, please visit us at nateoldridge.com.